Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today are Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. This week on the Spike podcast, Brexit and the economy, the yellow vest movement and the silencing of women on social media. The economy crashes by 8% in a single year. GDP would fall by up to 8%, the sharpest decline since the 1920s. The unemployment rate would almost double to 7.5%. A slump in the pound would trigger price rises in inflation. While the car and pharmaceutical industries would be more than 20% smaller than had we remained. Its vision of what happens if Britain leaves the EU abruptly in March is pretty horrific. This week, the Treasury and the Bank of England produced their economic forecast for Brexit, both predicting major economic disruption under every Brexit scenario. The Bank of England, for instance, said there would be a recession to rival the financial crash, inflation would soar to 6.6%, the pound would fall by 25%, and the list of woes goes on. Tom, what do you make of these kinds of forecasts? Well, I think it was interesting, first of all, how you know, coincidental the two sets of forecasts were. Because as you say, on Wednesday, we had the Treasury bring out its forecast talking about how um, under May's Brexit plan, there would be a 3.9% drop in GDP after 15 years, effectively saying that no Brexit option would be good for the economy and admitting as such on radio. And then just, of course, a few hours later, we had the Bank of England releasing its regular stress testing um, of the economy and finding, as you say, far more kind of fire and brimstone predictions in there that the no deal Brexit would send the pound plunging, that it would trigger this recession, as you say, worse than the financial crisis, that there would be an 8% contraction in the immediate aftermath of no deal if there's no Mm. transition period. So pretty fire and brimstone stuff. I think the first point to say is that, of course, economic forecasting is hardly an industry with a hell of a lot of credibility at this point in time. I think that's fair to say. It's not to say we should dismiss these things entirely, but I think it's an important caveat that everyone bears in mind. But also, if you look into some of these forecasts, take the Bank of England's one, it's quite clear that they're working on a set of assumptions, which I don't think anyone would think would be particularly plausible. One of the things that they would assume would happen or they present would happen as part of this disorderly no-deal Brexit is that the interest rates would be jacked up. That's within the Bank of England's gift to do. And they certainly didn't jack up interest rates in the wake of Brexit. And similarly, there's assumptions built into there that we would raise tariffs across the board, despite the fact that in a situation in which we did have a disorderly exit, that would be, you know, economic self-harm to pursue a policy such as that. And we even saw former members of the Monetary Policy Committee come out and say, does anyone actually take these things seriously? But I think the thing that really gets to the grip of, and I think the thing that's really interesting going forward is whilst Project Fear certainly didn't work on the British public, we ignored the really extreme predictions made by people like Mark Carney about instant recession in the event of a Brexit and everything else. The problem now is that obviously Brexit is entirely in the hands of the political class. And I think considering the fact I think cowardice has been on show throughout this whole Brexit process, that's the more concerning thing. They're far more likely to take this stuff seriously. And um, I suppose one really concerning thing about the political class is that many Remainers, especially in the Labour Party in particular, actually see it as their duty to protect us from what we voted for, in a sense. that the One MP put it this way, if the public have voted to punch themselves in the face, then it's my job to stop that from happening. But of course, you know, we knew that there are risks to Brexit. We know that there are risks to any kind of major change. I, I don't agree that the risks are anywhere near as, as large as the Bank of England make out. But there are, you know, obviously uncertainties. It, it, it's quite 
interesting how wedded to the status quo the Bank of England and the and the Treasury are that they assume that remaining in the EU has only upsides and no downsides, that there are no advantages to being able to change economic course. I mean, what do you make of that, Ella? Yeah, well, it's a bit, it feels like we're a bit in Groundhog Day because I was going back and looking at that leaflet that we got through the doors during the referendum and it reads like a statement from the Bank of England today. I mean, mm. it literally says, if the UK voted to leave, the resulting economic shock would put pressure on the value of the pound, which would risk higher prices and damage living standards. That's the exact word for word message we're getting today in relation to no deal. So we're back where we started uh, and that does feel really frustrating. But I mean, I read a very interesting article by Larry Elliott in The Guardian, in which he said, is this as good as it gets? I mean, it, you know, the mm. idea of the status quo being the thing that we have to save. I mean, rewind back before the referendum and we were having discussions about the economy in which everyone admitted that it was in a bad place. Everyone was asking for some kind of solution, some kind of change. Everyone was saying we can't go on like this. And yet now mm. <laughs> we're in the position where the majority of the political class are dying to go back to that economic stagnation of two years ago you know that that's is seen as the kind of golden thing to achieve rather than seeing Brexit as this opportunity to completely shake things up I mean uh, Phil Mullen has been brilliant writing about this on spite in making the central point that if you have an economy that can't manage political change Brexit is you know potentially going to be quite dramatic in relation to what it would change not just for the economy but the whole way in which politics works but if you if you have an economy that is so hostile uh, and so fragile in relation to any kind of forward movement, that can't be good. Mm. So, you know, what is it? Are we admitting that we just are going to live in a prolonged period of stagnation for the next, what, 20, 30 years? Or are we actually going to make good on what people said during the referendum when their vote for Brexit, which was, I know my living standards might drop. I know the pound might go into trouble. This is more important for me. Mm. Political change is more important for me. The last thing that's so striking about some of these predictions is that baked into them is the assumption that the most extreme predictions at least that um, the government and business will effectively do nothing mm. or act in ways which would be entirely damaging to their own interests you know I mean so we do need to look into these things because there's certainly not enough skepticism at the moment and the reason as Ella was saying these things are so leapt upon is because it feels like the rearguard remains set or just the political class in general who are becoming more and more fearful about what might happen as that meaningful vote on May's deal approaches are really returning to course which is effectively to present as has often been the case economic stability and democratic control as a kind of zero-sum game you can't have both mm -hmm. you can't have brexit you can't have a repatriation of powers and expect um the good times as they would see it to continue this definitely didn't work last time first of all because i think voters were willing to trade a bit of uncertainty for change and also they didn't necessarily swallow the kind of slightly more panglossy and economic um, predictions of some of the leave campaign you know uh, matthew goodwin found in a uh, in a panel survey that he was doing before the referendum and afterwards that just 12% of people actually thought that Brexit would have an immediate economic boon. You know, this idea that everyone was sold this sunlit uplands lie, I think is, is very, very dubious. But at the same time, it just comes back to that fundamental point, which is about that for some people, and this was incredibly shocking for some people in the political <laughs> class to realise, they their interests politically are not simply about what's in their wallets there it's not simply about short-term economic self-interest and despite the fact that as we all know many people um many working class people voted leave i mean i think the national center for social research found that the groups most likely to vote leave were those living in social housing those um working on 
those with a salary of less than £1,200 a month, as well as those with no formal education. But even those people are willing to take a risk for more control, for more democracy. And not only that, but they actually see more control, funnily enough, as a way out of their economic as well as political isolation. That's something that the political class don't seem to get at all. And the fact that they're kind of reverting to course to this project fear mark to this um, economic fear mongering the idea that if they just throw as many of these forecasts at us that eventually we will see sense I think if nothing else just shows how little they understand us even at this point. It's also really hard to know what to believe because I mean I was reading a BBC report today which said you know big headline MPs say there'll be huge disruption in ports and then you know an hour later or something Department for Transport comes out and says hang on that's not really actually quite Mm. right Mm. Uh, so there's 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 the political use of the economy in relation to the kind of scare tactics that we're used to. But there's, I mean, I also feel quite legitimately angry that the government hasn't managed to make provisions for a no deal. You know, yes, so absolutely. the idea that we would, even if you believed the scare tactics and said, okay, we're going to crash out and then suddenly everyone's wages are going to drop and then suddenly we're going to be stockpiling medicine, all this stuff that I find it hard to believe. But at the same time, if it is true, why haven't you done that? You've mm. had two years. I mean, you've you've got two really horrible sides. On the Labour side, you have people saying, now people really didn't vote to, you know, make their lives worse off. Mm. And it's our job to get back to the reality of, you know, most people out there really just want to get back and talk about housing. They don't want to talk about Brexit. Mm. And so, you know, they have that kind of really disgustingly patronising argument. But then on the Tory side, <laughs> you'd have them throwing up their hands saying, whoa, 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 we haven't prepared for this. You know, we can't do this. You feel relatively powerless at the moment as a Brexit voter because what you want, you're being told, is absolutely impossible. And it just, I think, comes down to that point was whereas at the moment we're hearing so much about how Brexit is disastrous, it probably wasn't possible in the first place that all of these forecasts really proved that. I think everything you said there, Ella, just proves the fact that a lot of this has nothing to do with Brexit. It has a hell of a lot to do with not just the incompetence of the Tory party, but potentially it's active decision not to prepare for these potential situations in the first place because they never wanted to implement it as much as some of them like to pretend that they did. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find us. Up next, The Yellow Vests. Over the past two weekends, hundreds of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets all over France. The gilets jaunes, or yellow vests, take their name from the high-vis jackets that all French drivers are required to own by law, which they have fashioned into their symbol of resistance. What began as a protest against a rise in fuel taxes has turned into a larger revolt against the status quo and President Macron's rule. Tom, would you like to say a bit about that? No, I think looking at it from the other side of the channel, it does look incredibly... Positive. And also, I think it really gives the lie to a lot of the metropolitan elite um, wishful thinking about Macron. You know, there was, an, there was a headline in The Guardian, which was, when did the French fall out of love with Macron? And anyone who's been paying the least bit of attention would know that they never really fell in love with him in the first place. You know, he won an election in which it was the choice between him and the successor to a neo-fascist party. I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> a difficult choice for most people. And that even at the time of his election, it was quite clear um, that this technocratic kind of Tony Blair wannabe um, did not command a hell of a lot of support. You know, in the second round of the presidential election, there were um, a record three million um, blank votes expressing a preference for neither candidate. The first legislative election that followed had the lowest turnout in the history of the Fifth Republic. And it just seemed like, you know, at the time we had The Economist presenting Macron walking on water, (laughs) literally. All of this, the man who would... um, 
stave off populism and save the EU. It just goes to show that the French people are as agitated with their political class, as agitated with the technocratic set as any country across Europe. And you can so easily see why, you know, despite the fact that a lot of his policies are very unpopular, like the um, fuel tax and the green taxes that have sparked these protests, just the way he carries himself in general. You mm. know, there's this procession of gaffes which have only added to the idea that he is this kind of polished princess that came out um, in August last year that he had spent €26,000 in three months on a makeup artist, which was quite funny. You know, clips emerging of him talking to young people who were seeking jobs on the side of the street saying, but effectively, you're not trying hard enough. I could go across the road and find you a job. <laughs> um, and it's just really, really fascinating that it feels like the excitement amongst very in-the-know people across the, um, the West the world was such that they almost seem to ignore all of that stuff but I mean Fraser you wrote about the protests themselves on Spike this week and more the domestic situation so what what really is that about what's really driving this and you know is there room to be quite positive I think we should definitely be positive about it I I think you've got to look at it in in two ways there's a short-term context which is the the fuel tax Mm. and the rise of of Macron the price of diesel in France has gone up by 23% in just the last year and most French drivers use diesel so this is a kind of unbearable cost for for most people and you know macron has been raising the the tax on diesel um just adding to people's woes the idea of the tax is it's an environmentalist tax it's to um so that the french government can meet its co2 targets and it expects people to essentially drop their old car and buy a new one and buy a new hybrid car and buy a new or buy a new electric car which you know the average person obviously cannot afford to do or they're expected to use public transport. But if you live in a rural part of France, you need your car. Public transport has been in open decline over the last 40 years as governments have been essentially prioritising urban areas and ignoring more rural areas where public services are crumbling. So that's the kind of more longer term thing. And and people have had enough. People who live on the peripheries of the cities are fed up of being peripheral to politics. And so a fight back that says that these people matter, that, that their needs need to be taken into account when um, the technocrats are drawing up policies in Paris it, it is, I think, a really positive thing. It's funny that it's been a green tax or kind of environmentalist policy that has kicked this off. I think mm. European governments need to realise that they're not so popular. I'm thinking of what's gone on in Northern Ireland and other places. It seems like this is something that people get really angry about. And rightly so. I mean, I'm sort of slightly looking at the protests in France and being a bit jealous. It's been sort of inspiring watching French protesters going out. I think one woman was interviewed by The Guardian saying, uh, you know, Macron is unpopular and we used to have the guillotine for those <laughs> French politicians uh, and French monarchy were unpopular in the past. So that's pretty inspiring. But looking at what's happened in the UK, I mean, we have living, I've got a little Vauxhall combo and living in London, that's fairly pricey. I mean, we've had the T charge, the toxicity charge for pre-2006 cars, all meaning mounting prices on drivers and the kind of people who drive diesel cars the kind of people who are driving diesel cars all the time are working people people like my partner who's a tree surgeon builders plumbers all those kind of uh, people who are going to be hit worse by this and the funny thing is i remember reading an article by ben Pyle on spiked a few years ago uh, that only 10 years ago the eu was pushing mm. diesel mm. as a means to cut um, carbon. It was a it was a kind of a green policy to push people onto diesel. Now they say, oh, we've got that wrong. Now you have to buy hybrid. So it's very hard to actually trust the science behind this. Mm. And when you boil it down, it does seem like it is just uh, Macron trying to do a kind of knee jerk pro environmentalist policy without much thinking behind it. 
But it is the case that this does hit certain sections of society the worst. It's not the kind of uh, metropolitan elite who support Macron who are going to be suffering from this. It's ordinary working class French people, ordinary working class British people. So this it's it's sort of a bit exciting, I think, actually, to have this kind of divide writ large on the streets because... This is something that really matters to people. Mm. And, the, and the diesel thing, just quickly, it really just sums up how you know the experts don't always get it right. Effectively. It's like yeah. such a perfect symbol of that as far as this is something that, as you say, kind of late 90s, there was this big push across the EU to say, go for diesel because they're more efficient and therefore they're less polluting, etc. But then when it starting to realise all the other costs of it, suddenly they're clamping down upon it. So it's not only that the kind of technocratic politics of Macron, etc., is incredibly elitist and ignores the periphery. It also, its central claim that it's what works, that it knows best, is obviously bollocks as well. And it just pushes ordinary people around. They're pushed to buy diesel, and now they're being pushed to buy electric with absolutely Mm. no thought as to whether their finances can take it. I mean, the other aspect of this is that lots of people have been slandering it as a kind of far-right protest, and Mm. certainly uh, Marine Le Pen has thrown her weight behind it. She hasn't gone out on any of the marches, but she's encouraged some activists within her party to go out and get involved and yes it seems that at certain points when those activists have got involved things have gotten slightly more violent um, and that's certainly a criticism but on the whole the main thing is that this organization this collection of people is not linked to any kind of party it seems Mm. to have been organized online Uh, you've got people being bussed up and driven up in car shares from all over the country so it has that kind of grassroots feel to it and uh, you know it smacks of a definite a sort of contempt for ordinary working class people to just say this is another far right thing when it clearly mm-hmm. isn't. And it was interesting as well because, you know, Macron, when he first came and trying to reform the labour laws, was like, I will not give in to the streets. But at this <laughs> point, you know, referencing, you know, the fact that, you know, you try and change anything in France, you're going to get people burning tyres. But nevertheless, it's this time around, it's something very different. You know, as Fraser pointed out in his article this week, 70% of the country support these protests. It is something which has been genuinely grassroots. And it really just does give you hope for, even though it can feel like, even, you know, in the wake of the Brexit vote, things are still in a bit of a holding pattern that the public is still pushed out of it. It doesn't take much to light that spark. You're listening to the Spiked Podcast. Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to support Spiked, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Up next, Megan Murphy. This week, Twitter handed a permanent ban to the Canadian feminist Megan Murphy. New rules prohibit the misgendering and deadnaming of trans people, so calling someone by the pronoun he when they want to be referred to as she, could get you banned for life. Ella, do you want to tell us a bit more about this story? Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe, really, because it's so ridiculous. But Twitter has now got a new section in its hate conduct policy, which prohibits the targeted misgendering and dead naming of transgender individuals, as you've already explained. Megan Murphy is a Canadian feminist. Uh, she's pretty well known in Canada. She runs a pretty well known uh, online blog. And she was on Twitter's radar for a while because she had been saying such inflammatory things as men cannot be women. Mm. <laughs> you know, she was saying these sort of in Twitter's eyes, these really terrible statements. And then during a conversation online about a uh, trans individual, Jonathan Yaniv, who had caused a bit of fuss seemingly by trying to demand that uh, beauticians gave him a Brazilian wax. Any ladies listening will know what that means. <laughs> um, and so he was suing them or something? He was, yeah. yeah, it was quite serious, actually. He was suing them, presumably about discrimination. 
Uh, and during an online discussion about this, when someone asked, was it Jonathan Yaniv, uh, Megan Murphy said, yeah, that's him. And that last word, him, being un, you know classed as dead naming was what got her banned from Twitter. Now, you could sort of roll your eyes and say the kind of radical feminists are equally quite hostile to freedom of speech online. But this is really, really worrying, mm. um, not because of, you know, people want to go around dead naming people, but because if you cannot make a statement that is so innocuous mm, as, yeah. yeah, that's him, without being banned from one of the biggest tools in the modern world. You know, Twitter is a, is a fantastic tool, um, certainly for journalists like Megan mm. Murphy, then that's really, really bad. Mm. And it, as you say, Ella, the fact that Twitter and Facebook and these things, they have, whether we like it or not, kind of become the public square. They are where people discuss issues and it's so fascinating that we're seeing this tightening up on the trans issue i mean even this week on spite we've had we can't post an article written by brendan o'neill with the headline of there's no such thing as a trans kid it literally will not let us because again it's deemed to be hate speech and yet what's so interesting about the trans issue the fact that that's become the focus for some of this really intense censorship is that the vast vast majority of people agree with megan murphy on this issue if nothing else the vast vast majority of people do not think that just by saying the magic words by self-defining that you can change your gender and what we're effectively seeing is the social media giants who you know effectively look after the new public square are saying something which the vast majority of people believe to be true is inadmissible to say in public and i think that really gets to the grip of what how we got into the situation where what has become a very less very minority opinion shall we say almost sets the terms for acceptable debate and you know, not to, I don't want to go particularly down this this rabbit hole too much, but there has even been transsexual people who have referred to themselves as men, mm. who have said we're not we're not women. We present as women, and we want to be accepted in that way, but we're not literally um, women. And they too have been banned for that for their own self definition. Mm. That is a big falling. schism, as far as I can tell, at the <laughs> yeah. moment between the the transsexuals and the and the transgender. But that but that's the level of 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 micro policing of of this debate, which is which is incredibly disturbing, particularly when you know this issue is going to be debated in Parliament soon in Britain around the Gender Recognition Act. We just had a consultation on it. You know the fact that one of the tech giants is effectively saying that you will side with the government's view or no other view is really, really disturbing. You know, you cannot even discuss the issue. And it's also worth noting that uh, this whole thing is centering around the discussion of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually I would be disagreeing with someone like Megan Murphy and her feminist politics. I think there's lots to criticise there. But I find myself having to back women like her because... What she's essentially trying to do is have a discussion about what it means to be a woman, about gender. uh, And as a woman, she is being stopped from doing Mm. that. And, you know, misogyny is a very strong word. But I think there are whiffs of misogynistic behavior coming from trans activists who want to essentially clamp women's mouths Mm. shut when it in relation to talking about their experience of their own gender. I also find it questionable that you would be able to simply state yourself a woman like clicking your fingers by saying a sentence. I mean, mm. it's it's just really interesting and damning that th- that this is discussion is not being had about men. Why is it that the whole fury around this is about turning into a woman? It sort of <laughs> ma- it sort of makes the mm. feminist in you kind of rise up and think, what's going on here? Is it so devalued the idea of womanhood? Is is women such a easy thing to be that you can just you know any bloke with a beard can say that he mm. is one? We've had we've talked on this podcast previously about the whole kind of discussion about the Wimxn, the kind of changing of the nature of language. 
all of this stuff, if it's allowed to happen without debate, and if big, as you say, big tech giants kind of basically shut down the debate on this, it means that women's voices get silenced. And I thought we were beyond that mm. in society. <laughs> and I think it's important to note as well that this kind of pretty visceral hatred bordering on misogyny we're seeing coming from certain trans activists is not just online either. You know, it was only last year um, that we saw that bizarre situation in Hyde Park in London where you had a um, male to female trans person who effectively assaulted a 60-year-old grandmother who was waiting to go to a feminist meeting about the Gender Recognition mm. Act. And there has been cases upon this time and time again where you're seeing a, effectively kind of street clashes between, you know, sort of an older generation of radical feminists and younger trans activists and, and so-called trans allies. Now, it's not to say that every, you know, trans woman is only in the trans woman game because they secretly hate women and want to call them all TERFs and that's just their coded way of calling them bitches or something it's not necessarily just that but i think it's definitely fair to say that there is um something about the trans movement at the moment which is providing cover for this kind of behavior which is presenting it on some level as morally righteous or at the very least not talking about it honestly and if anything all the conversation is about how megan murphy's tweets are apparently so damaging rather than some of the harassment and actual you know physical altercations which are being you know resulting from the other side it's also having been a woman who has experienced the wrath of certain <laughs> online trans activists. I do find it hard to believe this whole kind of discussion about victimization and victim narrative around trans activists. You know, the idea that Megan Murphy saying, yeah, that's him online would, you know, traumatize people mm. online. Try talking about trans issues mm. on Twitter. And <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying I'm traumatized, but it's difficult. And uh, the kind of ire that you get from trans activists, especially as a woman, is, is you know, pretty bad. So there's a lot of hypocrisy in relation to this. And this is not me, by the way, now calling for Twitter to ban no. trans <laughs> activists from making hot-headed points. But there has to be open debate in relation to this. And, you know... Uh, like you said, Fraser, the fact that this is essentially backing the government's position is really worrying. No, exactly. And it's not to say that necessarily, you know, trans people have an easy lot in life. But I think what the, the trans activists set, and I think we should make that distinction between the activist set and, and trans people in general, mm. um, they're trying to present just discussing this openly, forthrightly, even quite gently as a form of violence. And with an issue as big as this, with so many implications, with so much at stake, really, it's important that we have out these things openly. And that seems to be the conversation that some activists just don't want to happen. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week with more. And in the meantime, for your daily dose of Spiked, go to spiked-online.com. See you next week.